Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Father, we've come before you um, eager to hear from you, Lord. We know that when your word is faithfully preached, that it's you speaking to us. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak. We pray, Lord, that your word would come alive this morning in a way for us that it hasn't before. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Lord, your word is life-giving. Psalmist says that he was near death and he was drawing up inside, but your word gave him life. And so we pray that you would do that for us this morning. There are people who have come here and it was... And the last thing they had the effort to do, Lord, and you brought them to hear, here to hear from you. I pray, Lord, that you would give strength to the weary. Lord, I pray that you would convict those who need conviction and comfort those who need comfort. That's something only you can do. We are entirely dependent on your spirit to come and glorify Christ. We pray that he would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are. We're in this series called Finally Free. And you guys have some cards there that you could hand out to friends. Um, but it's a series about how the gospel is, is freedom. Go- gospel is a message about freedom in Jesus. Through Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, he's freed us not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. And we've been looking at how the gospel affects us. And the first week we looked at gospel urgency. Why is it important that we make the gospel entirely clear? In our, to ourselves and to others. And then last week, we looked at gospel calling. We saw how Paul was called by God to, to receive Christ and to preach Christ. And now we're going to look at this um, in chapter 2. There's this historic meeting, and it's a super important meeting in the church that you probably never even thought about. But take a look at Galatians 2.1. Paul says this, After 14 years, meaning after 14 years after his conversion, after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I went because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I was proclaiming to the Gentiles, in order that I might make sure that I was not running and had not run in vain. I love how Galatians, actually, the first two chapters has a lot of narrative portion, so you get to hear a lot of the story of what Paul was doing and where he went and things like that. It's got a lot more narrative than a lot of the other letters do, and it's really cool because there's time indicators. You can insert it into where it goes in Acts, so you can kind of dovetail them together. It's just fun to do. Um, Our passage this morning records a meeting between Paul and Peter and John and James, and it's actually one of the most important meetings in world history. And it's a meeting, though, you probably didn't know anything about, probably never had heard of it. Paul goes up to meet with these guys, these other apostles in Jerusalem. And um, we might wonder, well, why did he do this? After 14 years of ministry, he goes up there to connect with these guys. Why does he do it? And um, it says in chapter, in verse 2, it says that Paul went up there because of a revelation. He says, I went up because of a revelation. Paul apparently got some sort of revelation, some sort of message from God saying that he needed to go do this. But there's a second reason, too, and you can see it also in verse 2. He says, I set before them the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. He went up there because of revelation. He went up there, too, because he was super concerned about something. He's super concerned. What's Paul concerned about? Um, He says here that he's worried that he might have run or is running in vain. I don't know how many of you guys run. I do not run. And so if I was going to run, it would need to be not in vain. It would need to be something very important. There's a fire, somebody's dying, something like that, because I don't run otherwise. But um, Paul is using this imagery of that he's been running, and he wants to make sure that it all wasn't for nothing. You've got to think, like, well, what's Paul's concern? 
what, what is it about this meeting that if he didn't agree with the other apostles would mean that he was running in vain? And you might have a couple of conclusions. You might say, well, you know, Paul was worried that maybe he didn't have the gospel right after all, and he was concerned that maybe he was preaching it wrongly the whole time. That can't be it, guys. That can't be it because of uh, chapter 1. We learn that Paul received the good news of Jesus straight from Jesus. If you look in chapter 1, verse 11, he says, I would have you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was preached by me is not a man's gospel. I did not receive it from man, um, nor was I taught it, but received it from a revelation of Jesus Christ. So it can't be that Paul, 14 years in, is like, Maybe I'm doing this wrong. Maybe I don't have this message right. It can't be that. He received this straight from Jesus. He hasn't become suddenly fuzzy on what Jesus told him about the gospel. You might have another guess to say, well, maybe Paul feels the need for the apostles' approval of his ministry, and that if he didn't have them approving of him as an apostle, that somehow his ministry is not valid. But that can't be it either. That can't be it either because of chapter 1. Paul says that he's an apostle in verse 1. Not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ. He received his apostleship, his ministry, directly from Jesus. And so it's not that he's like thinking like he needs some validation from the other apostles to somehow have a, a valid ministry. And we know that because in this section he goes out of his way to say that he doesn't need the apostles' approval. And he says it in ways that might disturb you. Like in verse 2 he says, he calls those apostles in Jerusalem, Peter and John and James, those who seemed influential. I think that's kind of dismissive. Or in verse 6, he says, those who seemed influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. You think like, boy, that's kind of, it almost seems a little harsh. Like, I, believe me, these guys get along. Believe me, these guys love each other. But what he's doing is he's saying, I didn't count on them for their affirmation. I became an apostle directly from Jesus. And in verse 9, he says, when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, once again, a little bit dismissive sounding, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me. These are equal apostles. So Paul doesn't need to go up to Jerusalem to somehow have his apostleship validated. They're on an equal playing field as far as being the highest level of the church leaders, apostles. And so what is Paul worried about? You know, he goes to this meeting and he's concerned that he had, maybe he's running in vain or had run in vain. What's the concern? What, why is it so important that him and the apostles would agree on the gospel message? Well, remember, guys, that Paul is going all over preaching a message of the good news of Jesus that all you have to do is trust in Jesus the Messiah and you have right standing with God. That salvation is completely based on faith in the Messiah. But the thing is, there were false teachers. Remember from last week, they were running around. They were coming in after him, and they were saying, yeah, you know, Paul gave you part of the message. It is about Jesus the Messiah, but if you're going to have a Jewish Messiah be your Messiah, you need to become a lot more Jewish. And so they were saying, you need to get circumcised. You need to keep the Mosaic law. They were adding things to the gospel. It wasn't just faith alone. It was some other things that you needed to do and be to really be received by God through Christ. And remember, we call that legalism. Legalism is adding anything to Jesus for your ground of acceptance. So it's Jesus plus, you know, my, my good deeds, my works that I do. And these false teachers were specifically called Judaizers. And they're called Judaizers because they were telling people, you got to become more Jewish to have Jesus as your Messiah. Uh, and they were pushing those Jewish customs and cultural practices, the Mosaic Covenant, on people. And, you know, I think what happened is Paul thought, well, what if it's true? <laughs> and I keep hearing these messages that the Jerusalem apostles teach this message. That's what the false teachers were saying. They're saying, hey, we came from Jerusalem, and Paul and James and Peter are teaching this. And Paul might think, I mean, not Peter, James and uh, John are teaching this. 
And Paul might have thought, like, maybe it's true. Maybe, maybe those Jerusalem apostles are, have veered from the gospel. And so he's having this meeting to make sure. It's a super high-stakes meeting, guys. This is one of the most important meetings that ever happened in world history. And the reason is, if the apostles don't agree on the gospel, there would be this devastating division from the beginning of the church. Ephesians talks about how the apostles are the foundation of the church. If you have a crack foundation, you don't build a building. So what would have happened if they had disagreed on this issue is the Great Commission would have been dead on arrival. All of Paul's work would have eventually been choked out. He would have been running in vain. And I love that Paul has this concern about what Peter and John and James are actually teaching. And I love instead of just like you going, you know, I don't really want to deal with it. I don't like confrontation. He goes, you know what? I'm going to go right up there. I'm going to go right up there and find out what's going on. You know, I need to know the truth. And because unity, guys, is forged often through confrontation. We need to have those kinds of confrontations sometimes to get to full unity. And so Paul rolls into Jerusalem to see what those apostles are teaching in Jerusalem, and he brings them the good news of the gospel, and he says, is this what you guys believe? Do you guys believe that that Gentiles, non-Jews, are accepted by God exclusively on the basis of faith in the Messiah? Do you believe non-Jews are every bit a member of God's family the moment they trust in the Messiah? Or are you saying that they need something else? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to follow the, the Mosaic law? And what's really fun about this is he brought with him a test case. Because these things aren't just theoretical. They involve actual people's lives. He brings Titus with him, right? Titus is Greek. He's uncircumcised. And you could just imagine this. He goes, hey, I'm going to go check. Make sure that Peter and James and John are teaching the same thing we are. Uh, Titus, I want you to come with me. I want you to see if, you know, maybe they won't want to get you circumcised. You can imagine, like, Titus is like, oh, yeah, so, so I'm busy? Um, I got some things going on. You know, you can imagine Paul going like, don't worry, we're not actually going to do it. You're a test case. We're just going to see what they say, you know. And it also makes you wonder, too, like, how do they know? You know, do they ask? Is it honor system? You know, Titus shows up. They're like, hey, did you, uh," you know, that kind of a thing. I don't know. I don't know how it worked. Um, Probably honor system, I would assume. Um, but so what's the outcome? They come up there, they, they, they give the gospel to the Jerusalem apostle. What's the outcome? The outcome is they all agree. They all agree that non-Jews like Titus are accepted by God and received into God's family by faith alone in the Messiah. You see that in verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. They're like, no, brother, you're good. You trust the Messiah? You repent of your sins? Yeah? Okay, you don't have to do anything else. That is, that is totally the basis of inclusion in, into this. And, and when they heard Paul's gospel, it says in verse 6, they added nothing to him. They didn't have anything else. They said, no, Paul, that's exactly what we're preaching to. You know, our cultural style in our church is different, but our gospel message is exactly the same. It's so cool. So they agree on the gospel, and then they, they affirm each other's ministry. Look at verse 7. He says, Paul says, When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, or the non-Jews, just as Peter was entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, or the Jews, for he who works through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked through mine to the Gentiles. When James and Cephas, which is another word for Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. This is super cool because these guys are very different in a lot of ways, but they're unified on the gospel and they're unified also in their care for the poor. Look at verse 10. Only they asked me to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Next week, I'm going to deal with just that verse and just show you how does belief in the gospel um, is is evidenced in our care for the poor. And we're going to take an offering for um, some needy brothers and sisters in Cambodia. So just be prepared for that. We'll do that next week. But don't you love this? You got Peter, 
You got Paul, you got James, you got John. They met Jesus in different ways, right? They've been living for quite some time in entirely different cultures, right? They've been tasked with reaching vastly different groups. Now, sometimes Paul, you know, converted a Jew here or there, right? And sometimes Peter would convert a Gentile here and there. But they had vastly different ministries. These guys that have completely different um, lives, really, agree on this message. And I was just thinking about how does that relate to us? You know, when we look at their example of unity in the gospel, how does it relate to us? And I think it relates to us in two ways. It relates to how we treat each other in the church here, and I think it really relates also to how we treat other churches, okay? So it's how do we think about each other here and how we treat other churches. First, the unity with each other. You know, you gotta really got to think about with this passage, you got to think about what is the basis in your mind to where you accept another person as a legit brother or sister in Christ, Okay, what do you think of? What is the thing, what is your criteria in your mind to say, yep, that person is, is totally a disciple of Jesus, that's totally a person that is trusting in Christ just like I am. What is your basis for that? I know, you know, with some churches, the approach to unity is that pretty much if we're going to have unity, everybody needs to believe the exact same things about all points of doctrine. I mean, that's one way to go about it, right? You're laughing because it's impossible, right? Is that we all should have the same, unity means same mind, in all the things that we believe, right? Unity is unison, right? It's that we all share the same views on things. And if you don't really agree with us on this area or that area, maybe you should just go down the street and find another place that you agree with, right? There's that mindset, right? Because the diversity in that is kind of threatening, kind of scary. It's a lot easier if we just kind of all agree or we all pretend to agree, right? That's what more commonly happens. Um, the problem with that, there's many problems with that. It doesn't work. Um, but also, the New Testament describes the church as a family, guys describes the church, this body right here, as a family. Um, and unity doesn't require that we agree on all secondary issues of theology and practice, right? The church is a family. And guys, there's no family where all the members agree on everything, right? You don't have a family like that, do you? I mean, if you have very small kids, maybe you have a family like that. But they will get older and they will have their own opinions and you will have a family that has different opinions on things. And you don't have to go looking for another family because you don't all agree. Church is a family, Church is a family where we can disagree on very important things. I want you guys to know that we have members and leaders of this church that differ strongly on important issues. Now, I'm not saying these things don't matter. I'm just saying that the gospel binds us together in a way that we can have differences on these things and we don't divide over it. We have members and leaders who strongly differ on important issues like spiritual gifts, which ones continue to this day, um, mode of baptism and who should be baptized. We have differences on the way God created the world. We all agree God created the world, but the way he created the world. We have uh, strong differences that we feel strongly about, about end times. We definitely have large political differences in how we apply um, the gospel to, to politics. And guys, we debate these, but we don't feel the need to divide over them. We don't need to divide over these. And that doesn't mean that we don't think theology is important. I think theology is very important. You guys who know me know that like, I'm very much a theological person. I read systematic theology books for fun. Okay, like people go like, hey, do you know of a good devotional? I'm like, yeah, you know, Horton's Systematic Theology is a great devotional book. And they're like, I wasn't thinking this book, you know, like I love this stuff. So it's not like we're thinking, oh, you know, theology doesn't matter. Theology is really when we take all that scripture teaches and we try to make the clearest picture of who Jesus is and what he's doing in the world. That's what theology is about. Super important. We don't want a fuzzy picture of who God is. We want a clear picture and we take all the scriptures and we try to 
put them together to find a way to understand, like, what is God really like? You know, what is he really doing? How does he really work in the world? These things are vastly important, very important. I get so tired of the things that, you know, you start to get into a little debate on some theology thing, and somebody says, oh, well, it's not a salvation issue, so who cares? Like, that's the most boring way to live ever. Like, like, let's debate it. Like, the church is a great environment, guys. It's a safe environment for us to be able to debate things. Let's open our Bibles and let's argue and let's find the truth and not fear that you're going to have to go down the street somewhere else because you don't agree with me, right? Like, let's hammer it out. These are in-house debates. Let's debate them. And what better place to argue and wrestle than in the family of God? Do you do arguing and wrestling in your family? You know, the, the church is a place to do that. And, um, and guys, these differences actually make our church a place, a good place for thinking and learning and growing, right? Rosaria Butterfield, I really love her books. She says, when everyone thinks the same, no one thinks much, right? Isn't that the truth? When everybody thinks the same, nobody thinks much because they think, okay, well, you know, I'm kind of seeing this here, but I know they teach this. I'm not going to bring it up. I don't want to stir the pot. No, bring it up. Let's, you know, that person deserves to deal with that. The scripture is teaching something that might not fit with their system. Let them deal with it. <laughs> let them deal with it. Let, let them hammer it out. What about leaders? Do leaders have to agree on everything? No, we want the most gospel-centered, grace-driven, spirit-empowered, Bible-loving people to be leaders. You do not have to agree with me on every point of doctrine. Isn't that cool? I just love that. You guys know that this isn't a new thing. You guys know who Charles Spurgeon is? Is Charles Spurgeon, like, serious about theology? Was Charles Spurgeon serious about the Bible? Was Charles Spurgeon, like, fuzzy about the Bible? No, right? Was, was Charles Spurgeon a Baptist? Yes. So he was a serious Baptist, okay? He believed that only uh, believers should be baptized. He's very strong on that. You, know, you guys know that when he formed a pastor's college, he's going to train men for ministry. Do you know he picked for the first president of his pastor's college? A Presbyterian. Somebody didn't agree with him on baptism, didn't agree with him on church government, didn't agree with him on end times, and he thought, this is the best person to put here. Probably want to challenge his students a little bit, right? So this isn't a new thing. This will also govern, guys, how we treat other churches. I love how they affirmed each other's ministry. Look at verse 7 again. It says, when they, the, the, Peter, John, and James, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, and this is a little bit later. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Guys, all kinds of churches are needed to finish our mission. I, I once attended a church that honestly believed that they were the only solid church in the entire area. Like, they honestly believed that. And they borderline would say it regularly. Like, this was a value to them. Um, scary if true right? <laughs> scary if true. It's scary if true because it's like, hey, you guys better get on it because you're the only ones to evangelize this whole place. Like, I want to see some action if you're the only solid church in the area. Guys, it's super important that we see different churches valuable in God's kingdom. And we all have opinions on churches. We think, you know, there's a list of churches in the area, and this is the kind of area where people go to lots of churches, and they hear from other people what other churches are doing. Like, it's just a thing, right? You know what they're all doing, and you know what's going on, you know what the drama is over there. And you think, oh, well, that church is too formal. Oh, well, that church is too casual. That church is too charismatic. Oh, that church is too academic. That church is too seeker, right? That church is too political. That church is too doctrinal. Guys, you know what? As long as they're preaching the same gospel the apostles were, they are a valuable part of us finishing the Great Commission, right? Everybody is needed, unless you're planning on doing that yourself, right? But, but you know what, guys? As long as they're preaching that, they are a valuable member. 
It's amazing, guys, how God uses different churches to reach different people, you know? You have a friend, you know, you really want them to come to Christ, you've been praying for them to come to Christ, and then somebody, you know, you've invited them to your church, and then somebody else is also praying, invites them to their church, and they go there, and you're like, oh, that's not a good place for them to go. And then they get saved, and you're like, oh, okay. You know, it's like a lot of people have issues with, like, mega churches, like, oh, the mega church, this and that, blah, blah, blah. It's like a lot of people getting saved in mega churches right? And so God, every type of church is needed. And you guys, you can say that while ha- still having strong opinions on what's best. You can still think that what you're doing is best and value them. That's why we have different churches and denominations. C.S. Lewis used this really cool image for um, denominations and stuff. He said that there's mere Christianity. He's got a book about that, right? Mere Christianity, which is like a hallway. And we can all meet in the hallway, and we all have vast agreement and the stuff in the hallway. And then he goes, of course, different churches and denominations are going to have rooms their own rooms or they do things the way that they see the Bible really teaches and they might not agree with what someone else is doing in the room, but we meet in the hallway. You know, we're all part of one building and I think that's really helpful. Because the churches that Paul planted, guys, were, would have been vastly different than the ones Peter planted. Peter's planting churches in Jerusalem among, among Jews that are real serious about the Old Testament and they have this rich Old Testament background and they have, they're culturally Jewish. Those churches would have felt culturally Jewish. And then you've got Peter, you know, and you've got Paul, and he's out there, and he's planting churches in Galatia. You know, people back in Jerusalem be like, ah, oh, those are barbarians, like these dirty people that are out there being crazy, you know. And they, their church would have felt very Galatian. It just did. And you know, the people in those churches preferred their churches the way they were. You know, they didn't really want to probably go to a Galatian church, or the people in the Galatian church probably didn't want to, you know, like, God uses all different types of churches. And I think this is really important, guys, because we live in a post-Christian culture. I know you guys would like to deny that and feel like we're, like, we're on the resurgence here. We got this, you know. Statistics aren't in your favor, by the way, okay? Um, we're in a post-Christian time. There was a time, you can call it Christendom or call it whatever you want, when most people went to church and most people professed some sort of variety of Christian faith in the West, right? There was a time when that was true. And during that time, it made sense to them, though it wasn't really a good idea, that mission was all about proving to people in other churches that their church wasn't right and that they should come to ours, Okay, like that was missions, right? Because everybody's pretty much in a church, and it's like, oh, they're in a Presbyterian church. Let's get them over here. You know, that was the sense of mission, guys. Not the right kind. But guys, Christendom is dead. We live in a post-Christian culture. Almost no one attends, uh, faithfully attends a church or is involved in any way. And you guys might think, well, I've seen the statistics. I just say, look at your neighborhood. Maybe you have a unique neighborhood, but like look at the 10 houses around you. On a Sunday, I mean, you're not there probably, so you don't see, but on a Sunday, what, you know, how many of those people are regularly attending a, a gospel teaching church? In our neighborhood, there's just the family across the street, and there's one guy, like, way down the way, but the guy across the street, he comes here, you know, and the rest, as far as I know, don't, you know, so I'm just going to throw out a statistic. I think your mission field is the 90% of people <laughs> that are not faithfully attending a church um, at this time. It's not the 10%, right, that are, okay? And so, you know, in a post-Christian environment, it doesn't make sense to focus on the differences between churches and broadcast that to the 90% and confuse them. We should be very clear about what the gospel message is with them and not just try and reshuffle the deck of the 10%. Does that make sense? I think that's super important. So who's our mission field? It's people that don't understand the gospel or haven't been radically affected by the gospel, right? They don't understand the gospel, or they haven't been radically affected by the gospel. We're here for those 90%, not to quarrel with the 10%. Now, you could certainly debate them. You could certainly get your Bible out and argue with them. 
you know, and have a good time doing that. And maybe change your view in the process. But it's something that we need, we need to make the gospel extremely clear. And we don't make it clear with the kind of that, that argumentative mindset of, you know, I mean, arguing is fine. But the, this whole idea of like, oh, well, that church isn't right. That church isn't right. They're gospel teaching churches. Then, then they're, they're our partners. Let's imitate Paul and Peter. You know, unified by the gospel, give each other the right hand of fellowship, say, you've got a totally different mission than me. That's awesome. I'm going to go do mine. Let's go, right? But let me ask this question. Are there professing Christians that we can't be united with? Are there people that profess Christ, claim to be Christians, that we can't be united with? Okay, your temptation might be to say no. Look at verse 4. <laughs> Look at verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom, that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we didn't yield in submission for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Guys, there can be no unity with legalists. People that are taking the good news of Jesus and they're tacking on other requirements for salvation, other requirements to be made right with God. Look at how Paul describes them. These aren't my words. He says they're false brothers. So there is such a thing as people that are not real Christians, but claim to be. Um, Paul talks about them later um, in, in other books. He talks about false teachers of this, and he'll say that they're dogs and wolves. I mean, he's very strong language. In this language, what image does he use? They're what? Take a look at the text. Spies. Isn't that interesting? He said they're spies. He said they've secretly brought in, slipped in, spy out our liberty, right? What else are they? They're enslavers. You see that? Enslavers. So, so that they might bring us into slavery. Guys, freedom's at stake here. We don't compromise on the truth of the gospel, the exclusivity of just Jesus alone is what makes us right with God because freedom's at stake, guys. Look at how Paul responds to these people. He says this, To them we didn't yield submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. This is gospel obstinate, right? This is like we don't try to like make you feel good or make us feel like we're brothers or like, hey, we all do kind of agree, you know, kind of a thing. There's none of that, right? He says he doesn't yield for a moment. Just on this one issue. We're not talking about secondary gospel issues. I talk, secondary uh, theological issues. I talked to you about that. But I'm talking about the, the truth that it's Jesus alone that makes us right with God. None of our own works. He's obstinate about that. Freedom's at stake. Not just our freedom, but you see others' freedom, right? It might be preserved for you. Paul goes, and he's not going to give in to this at all because he's thinking about those Galatians. He's thinking, I do not want them to be confused that it's somehow their works that make them right with God. I am not going to rub elbows with these guys or shoulders or whatever you rub with people in a good way um, to try and make this unclear. He's, he's obstinate about it. We don't make tr- peace with enslavers, <laughs> Right? This, this false gospel is enslaving. Because, guys, Jesus came to make us free. There's two types of freedom that I want to show you as I close in this passage. And the two types of freedom, the first one is freedom from bondage to one culture. You know, guys, if these Judaizers, these false teachers, if they were successful in making this claim that people had to be circumcised and keep the Mosaic laws and things like that and become culturally Jewish to become Christian, what they would have done, they would have been successful in hindering the gospel from reaching all nations, okay? It's a bondage to one culture. God, guys, has been after a global multi-ethnic family from the beginning. Do you guys realize that? You go all the way back to Genesis 12. Genesis 12, verse 1. When God came to Abraham, he said this, now the Lord said to Abram, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And then listen to this. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Like the goal from the beginning, even of calling Abraham, was to, was to create a people that eventually the Messiah would come from. And he would bless all nations. You see in Genesis twenty two eighteen, he says, In your offspring or your seed, your, the Messiah shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And the prophets talked about this, right? The prophets talked about not just one culture having God's presence, but at one point, all the nations. says it over and over again, the prophets, that he was seeking a multi-ethnic, global people. And then you see in the Great Commission, right? Jesus says, go to all nations. Go to all nations and make disciples of all nations, right? And then we see in Revelation 7, it's really cool. In Revelation 7, there's this picture of what it's going to be like in the time to come when we see all those who have come to Christ gathered together. And this is what he says in Revelation 7. He says, I looked and behold a multitude that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Isn't that cool? Every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. How did John know that? How did John know when he looked forward to the future and saw all the gathered believers, all those who were saved in Christ, how did he know that they were from every nation and tribe and people language? They look like it. You know that? They look like it, right? I don't know if you guys had this view that like somehow the resurrected bodies, like we all look the same or something like that. That's not the case. God has from the beginning desired to have a multi-ethnic, multicultural people and for them to keep their culture and their ethnicity. Isn't that amazing? So amazing. Guys, the mo- you might ask yourself, well, what about the Mosaic Covenant? What about the circumcision? Why did God do that in the first place? You know, seems to create a lot of confusion. You know, he did the circumcision and food laws and temple and all that stuff. Why did he do this Mosaic Covenant thing in the first place if he wasn't going to keep on pushing that? Well, he did that originally, the priesthood, circumcision, food laws, to make Israel a distinct person, sorry, a distinct people among the nations. To make their nation distinct. The, the nation of Israel was designed to be a come and see people. They weren't much of a missionary people. I mean, tried that with Jonah, you know. Not real big on missions. But what they were is they were a come and see people. You could see the temple. You could see the priesthood. You could see the sacrifices. You could see people that ate in a certain way and dressed in a certain way and were set apart for God. You know, this is a nation set apart for God. And people did come. You know, Queen of Sheba and all kinds of people would come and they would see this nation. And they could become a part of it. You, there was a process where you could become a Jew. You know, you could become a proselyte. You could get, you know, if you're a man, you get circumcised. You start taking on those things. They clean you up real good. And you could be a part of that people. It was a come and see people, though. But by contrast, the new covenant, guys, the one Jesus brought in, the one we're a part of, is a go and tell people. Okay? Not a come and see people, but a go and tell people. The gospel frees the mission of God from bondage to one culture. See how important that is? If God's goal is to reach the nations, then the Mosaic law had a time that it was in force, and now it's not. New covenant, new covenant is, it's a go and tell people. And so the Mosaic covenant doesn't apply to us because it was fulfilled in Christ, and now he's freeing us from being bound to one culture. Have you guys ever wondered, happily, why the ban on bacon was lifted. Have you guys ever wondered that? I mean, that's part of the Mosaic Covenant, right? Is it you don't eat pork, you know, because the animals that you eat, they have to be like, you know, split hoof and chew the cud. Pig, split hoof, not chewing a cud, not cool, 
okay? And a lot of other animals, too. You can eat bats. We still don't want to, so that's fine. Um, other things. Do you guys ever wonder why God lifted the ban on bacon? Or why you can eat the eel in a caterpillar roll? So you eat a caterpillar roll. You didn't used to be able to eat eel because it's like a fish, but it doesn't have scales, right? The ones that you can see. So you can't eat the eel, right? It's not just for your enjoyment. And I know you guys enjoy it greatly. You can put the eel and the bacon together. That would be really good, right? Um, it's not just for your enjoyment, but it, the reason why the ban on bacon was lifted and all those food laws were lifted is so that you can enter any home and eat any food with any person and go and tell them about Jesus. Like, that's why it was lifted. You see, like, the first story with Peter, and, you know, he's totally kosher like he should be, and he has this vision, and God puts down this sheet, right? And there's all these animals, and they're alive. He says, rise and kill. It's real brutal, you know? It's like, not only can you eat everything, but you got to, like, you know, like, wrestle it down or something. I don't know. But it's a vision, so it's probably easier to do. Why was that? It was so he could go in Cornelius' house, right? It was, so he, it was for mission. We have been freed from those kinds of laws so that we can enter any home and eat anything with anyone so we can be a go and tell people, to tell them about the love of Jesus. Um, it's the lifting of the Mosaic Covenant that allowed a person like me to receive a Jewish Messiah while not being Jewish culturally, right? My people, Northern Europe, during this time, probably real shady, right? <laughs> like, you, know, you think first century Northern Europe? These are like barbarian barbarians, right? Um, and a person like me, descended from people like that, could, could come into God's family without becoming culturally Jewish. And it's, and it's because of that lifting of the Mosaic Covenant that, you know, at one point I was able to share the gospel with nomads in Mongolia over a meal of horse meat. Right? Horses, not clean, not, no parted hoof, just one hoof. Also not chewing the cud, they're blowing it twice. Um, I actually was tricked into that, by the way. It was like, ha do you know what you ate? You know, kind of a thing. And I was relieved when they told me it was horse. It could have been worse. <laughs> could have been marmot, also unclean. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's so that we can be a go-and-tell people. Guys, Paul's plan, has been, or God's plan from the beginning has been to draw a global multi-ethnic people to himself. And that they would keep their culture and their ethnicity. Not that they would join a Christian culture, Right? If there could even be one. So non-Jews could join God's family by remaining Gentiles. And guys, and Jewish Christians didn't have to give their culture up either. You know, you would think those churches in Jerusalem would have been very culturally Jewish. And that's great. Um, If they wanted to keep circumcising their sons and keep most of the kosher laws and celebrate Passover, of course they could do that. As long as they didn't trust in that for acceptance before God. And as long as they didn't allow that to keep them from their Gentile neighbors, they were free to keep their culture just like the Gentiles were. Um, the gospel, guys, frees us from bondage to a particular culture so we could be a missionary people. Secondly and lastly, it frees us from the bondage of a performance treadmill, okay? A performance treadmill. Because these Judaizers, they were enslaving people by calling them to look to their own works as a way to be right with God. And guys, if you believe that you're basically right before God because you keep certain laws, you know what you're going to want those laws to be? Very clear, very specific, and very doable, Okay? If you believe that you're right before God based on your law keeping, you're going to make sure the laws are very specific, very clear, and very doable, right? And that's what legalists do, right? That's what these guys were focusing on circumcision. Very clear, very doable for the children, harder for the adults, um, and specific, right? Or food laws. Very clear, very doable, very specific. And so legalism, even to this day, focuses on don't eat that, don't drink that, don't listen to that, don't wear that, don't vote for that, don't look at that, right? It try, the legalist always makes the laws very clear, very specific, very doable. 
But guys, these, the laws they don't love are laws like love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? That one's harder. Is that doable? <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. It seems kind of endless, right? Those are the laws that, that the apostles focused on, right? Things like don't covet. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not very doable, right? Um, when you see the full breadth of God's law and what it requires, you realize you can't keep it. Guys, if, if my acceptance before God is based on law keeping, how good is good enough? You have to ask yourself that. If you're relying, if you're saying, well, it's faith in Jesus and something else, how good do you have to do with that? Because, guys, the longer you're a Christian, the more you're going to see the sin in your heart. The more you're going to see the, the sinful attitudes, not even just the things you do, but the things you think and the things you are. Very disturbing things, right? And as you see those, if your acceptance is in, in, in God's love for you is based on those things, you're going to end up in this endless treadmill, guys, of guilt and insecurity. My kids and I, last week, we ended up watching hamster wheel videos, which are a great, like, side thing. I mean, if you're not into cat videos on YouTube, you can watch hamster wheel videos. And they're fun. I mean, hamsters are crazy animals, you know. They get in the wheel, and they're like this, you know. And then two of them get on, and they're going together, and everything's going good. And then one stops, and then, you know, it was, like, super fun to watch, you know. And I was just thinking, like, how that's a picture of the legalist, right? You get on the wheel, and you run, 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 and you never get where you're going. You know, and then other people, you could extend it further, other people hop on and they can't keep up with you and they end up all beat up, you know, like it fits really well. It's fun to watch, but is your Christian life like that? Are you always striving for some perfection that you can't attain and you're constantly feeling guilty and insecure because of it? We are striving for a standard that's not attainable. We're, 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 we're attempting by the power of the Spirit to keep all of God's commands as best as we can by the power of the Spirit. We're learning to do those. That's what being a disciple is. But if you're looking to that for your sense of like, I'm right with God because I had a really good day today. You know, probably that's you don't remember what you didn't do. <laughs> you know, you're probably forgetting something. If you're like, man, this was a great day. I know God smiles on me because I was just good today. Right? That's the wheel. That's the wheel you don't want to be on. Constant insecurity, constantly guilt. And some of you guys might object. Well, heaven and right standing with God, it can't be just based on believing. There's no way that it's just trust in Jesus and I'm right forever with God. It can't be that simple. There's got to be something I got to do. Don't you feel like that? This is the human impulse. I got to do something, okay? There's got to be some sort of work that's needed. There is a work that's needed, by the way, okay? We are saved by works. Jesus' works. Okay, like I noticed everybody not breathing. We are saved by works. We're saved by Jesus' works, right? So you're right to think like something had to be done. Somebody's got to do something. People can't just believe things. They got to do things. It was done. Jesus did things. He actually came and he lived a perfect life. And he, at every single command, he kept God's law perfectly. Because you think, how good is good enough? Jesus is good enough. Jesus' track record, perfect. He did every single thing that you found so difficult to do 100% perfectly. And then what he does, and this is the gift of the gospel, is it's like he hands you his law-keeping scorecard, and it has your name on it. He's like, hey, just turn this in. He's like, actually, you know what? I turned it in for you already. Isn't that amazing? His law-keeping scorecard, he's like, you know what? I'll just write your name on this if you trust in me. And turn this in for you. It's been fulfilled, guys. And you might ask yourself, well, then what's God's law for? Not the Mosaic law, which had been fulfilled, but the rest of God's law. You know, things like coveting and, you know, um, commands against adultery and commands against lying and loving the Lord with all your heart and all these other things. What is God's law for then if it's not for earning my way? Because that's what we all think. 
We all think, oh, he gave us a list of things to do to earn our salvation. It's not for that. Then what's it for? There's actually three purposes of the law, and I want to give them to you real quick. What is God's law for? First, God's law shows God's character. When you see a command like that you should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, it shows God's character, doesn't it? And Jesus did that very thing, right, on the cross. He loved his enemies and he prayed for those who persecuted him. It's God's character to love his enemies, right? Um, or um, you see a command, uh, you know, husbands love your wives. It's a picture of God's character, right? You see that Christ in the, the illustration of, of marriage being like Christ in the church. He loves his bride. It's an illustration of God's character. So the law illustrates God's character. Secondly, the law shows us our need for Jesus, right? When we look at the law and we don't just look at like food laws and stuff, but we look at like love your neighbor as yourself. Every intensity that you love yourself, love your neighbor, right? We look at commands like that, we see, I can't keep these. I can't keep these. So um, the, the law is to show God's character. It's to show us our need for a savior. And then thirdly, it shows us how to intelligently love God back. That's what it's for. You guys are familiar with the whole idea of love languages? So there's love languages, and people use this in marriage. It's actually a really helpful thing, unless you're like thinking, like, these are my love languages, and you're not speaking them. It's not for that. It's for looking at the other person and figuring out if you're speaking theirs. Okay, but it's things like what? What are the love languages? What? Touch. So Brett's is touch. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so, uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> there he is. So uh, physical touch, words of affirmation, uh, acts of service, um, gifts, and quality time, I think that's it. Something like that. So the idea is like, you know, this is free marriage stuff, right? Which is, you know, ask your spouse, so how do they receive love? Because you could be giving them gifts, 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 and that's not what they want. That's not how they feel love. The, the law of God, guys, is God's love language. You want to know how to love God? You want to know how he feels loved? He gives us his law. It's how we can love him in return. Not to earn anything, but in a response to his, his grace it's gratitude for his grace. Not so we can feel more secure for keeping it, but it's a way to say, Lord, I want to love you back. How do you receive love? And he's like, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Here's the things. Here's the way to show your love for me. And so now we keep his law out of gratitude for grace, not to earn acceptance. And it's a totally different motivation structure, guys. When you live into that, you realize this is a totally different way to live before the Lord. Legalism says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted, Right? At the end of the day, you go like, I know I'm accepted because I obeyed, right? I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm already accepted, therefore I obey. Why do I obey? Because of my acceptance in Christ. Because I'm so thankful. So I'm so amazed. It's that explosion of joy that it creates. One of them, legalism, enslaves you to a performance treadmill. The other one frees you to rest. I just want to ask you in closing, is that a message you'd like to share with anyone? Isn't that a message you would like to share with some people? Isn't that a message that everybody needs to hear? And isn't it cool that God has freed us in such a way culturally that we can go and befriend and be in relationship with people that before may have been excluded to us, people that we wouldn't naturally connect with and be able to share with them that message? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, this amazing meeting that, that happened between Paul and the Jerusalem apostles. And uh, we thank you, Lord, that you have in every step of the way preserved your message if it was up to human beings, we would have just ruined this thing instantly. And yet you've preserved the truth of the gospel. You've preserved the truth of acceptance before you through your son alone. And we thank you that you preserved it even down to this day in all kinds of different ways through very imperfect people. And we pray, Lord, that that message would fire us up so much to worship you today. 
to worship you here and to worship you out there in the community as we share this message of radical acceptance with you. Lord, we are a disaster, Lord. We're, we're incapable of doing your law, and yet you've done it for us. And now, with your Spirit, we start to feel this ability to do your law, Lord, out of gratitude, out of love for you. And now we love your law. It's not something that's threatening to us because we're not trying to use it to gain heaven, but we're using it as a guide to love you. Lord, help us to love your law more and more every day and love you back in that way. We love you, Jesus. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.